You're listening to another New Hope Chapel podcast. This podcast is from our series, Life in the Body, presented by Julie Coleman, author and member of New Hope Chapel's teaching team. I had a lot of lessons about humility growing up. Not, not what you would think. Thinking of me, impulsive, big mouth, yes, I had those too. But I also had a lot of lessons from my dad about humility. Not quite what you would want, though. Um, I was no stellar student. I wasn't any child protege in anything. I didn't stand out from the crowd in many ways. But I did have some accomplishments, like every child does in their uh, childhood, um, that were worth celebrating. I had gotten several leads in school plays, which was an accomplishment, and did those. Um, I won field day ribbons. I was really good at the running long jump. I know it's hard to believe, but it's true. (laughs) I also placed first in the three-legged race in eighth grade, but that's another thing. Um, I played in many piano recital. I sang in lots of choirs, got solo parts in choirs. Um, But any time that I showed any glimmer of having some kind of great accomplishment or even mediocre accomplishment in my lifetime, my father always took it upon himself to kind of bring me down a peg. And he would would say things that made me know that it wasn't quite perfect, that I could have done a little better, and, um, and, and that kind of thing. And then he would also be very free to point out, I had a very smart friend, her name was Eileen. She was a straight-A student, brilliant girl. And, of course, I was not a straight-A student, and so my father felt free to tell me from time to time he wished I could get grades like Eileen got. And, you know, it was that kind of a thing, always a little bit um, setting the bar a little bit higher than what I had reached was what my father did. Well, it kind of all came to the head. My senior year in high school, I got the lead. I was Maria in The Sound of Music. It was very exciting. I had really stiff competition, um, and, and it was very, but I was a senior. I think that's why I won out. <laughs> the girl who was really better than me, she was only a sophomore, so they let her, they said, well, she'll get her part in the next two years. But anyway, she's a delightful girl, and I love her. She's staying at my wedding. But anyway, she, uh, but I got the part, and I came home very, very excited. that I was, I was going to be in The Sound of Music. And, and so I, you know, I couldn't wait for my dad to come home so I could finally prove to him I'd made it and I'd done something great. And the first thing he said when I told him I got the part, I'm going to be Maria, he said, how are you going to do that? Well, I got mad. I thought, oh, I'll do it all right. I had those lines memorized in two days. Rehearsals hadn't even started. I knew my part. I knew the songs. I knew the lines. And I was determined I was going to do a great job. Um, and not, I didn't do as good as Deanna would have, but I did do pretty good, I guess. I survived it anyway. No one booed or anything. And so, but the last day, as, um, at, or, the, as the, or the opening night when we were taking our curtain calls and doing all that kind of fun thing, somebody came out with a big, huge bunch of red roses. And so I didn't know who they were from or anything, but, you know, I was taking my bows. And I got backstage, and I opened the card, and the note was from my dad and my, not my mom, but it was in my dad's handwriting. And it said, congratulations, Julie, we're so proud of you. And I thought, wow, so he does get proud from time to time. So later on, something else happened. I don't even remember what it was, but once again, he was kind of keeping the bihari for me. And I said, Dad... Why is it every single time I do something that's noteworthy, you know, in in my small way, you always bring it down. You're always taking me down a peg. And he said, I I said, are you you really ever proud of me? He said, yes, yes, I'm proud of you. He said, I'm just so afraid you're going to get a big head. And it, it dawned on me these years later that what my father was trying to do was not take me down, but to take me to a different place, to take me keep my heart, to guard my heart 
from pride and to get me to humility. It was great intention. I appreciate his love and concern in trying to do that for me. I think it was the wrong way to do it. <laughs> but um, I, get, I get what he was doing. Humility is an important biblical trait that we all should emulate. It's very, very important. It's in all over the Bible. But it's, humility is not determining to think badly about yourself um, or having low esteem or anything like that. It's not that. And that's the way he was going about it, which made it wrong. But today we're going to look at how the Bible defines humility and how we need to get there um, and doing it the right way, um, what the Bible says about walking in humility. So let's pray, and then we'll read the scripture together. Lord, we just ask your guidance this morning as we look through Philippians 2 and just ask that you would um, help us to see the things in it that you want us to see, help its truth to transform our hearts, help us to embrace this truth, and, uh, and that you would use it to bring us to an even greater sense of humility and how we interact with each other in the body. And we just ask your guidance. Get me out of the way, God. Just bring your truth out of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're going to start by looking at Philippians 2. And we're actually going through most of, uh, it's up to verse 8, but we're going to take it in small sections so we can kind of dissect it as we go along. Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Intent on one purpose. You see that whole section there is all about unity, all about unity in Christ. Um, Paul is writing his Philippians, the, the church there in Philippi, uh, about unity. And you have to know a little bit about the background to get where Paul is kind of going here. Philippi was a Roman colony, and people there were Roman citizens. Well, that was a really big deal. You had privileges that normal people uh, that were in, within the empire did not have because they were um, Roman citizens. They were a little bit like Annapolis. You know how in Annapolis all the old sea captains all come and retire and get a house on the Severn River? <laughs> well, that's sort of what Philippi was. Philippi was a, a place where the Roman government would give out parcels of land as reward to the officers in the Roman Empire so they would go and settle there and enjoy a privileged status and um, be a citizen of Rome. So they were used to loyalty to an empire. It was kind of a military-minded colony. Well, you understand that. You live in Annapolis, so um, it was like that. And um, so they were used to loyalty to the empire, and they were used to thinking like a citizen. But Paul tells them in chapter 3 that they need a new way of thinking, that their citizenship is not really in Rome, but it's really in heaven. And they need to start thinking like heavenly citizens. And uh, they had to start thinking like a people that had a different identity. They needed to operate as a body. Um, and you can see it in um, twice now. He talks, talks about unity as the way of having that mindset. In 127, he tells them, he wants to see them standing firm in one spirit with one mind. And you see those things echoed again in chapter 2. Be, being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. You see that? Same mind, same spirit. One mind, one spirit. Unity. That's what he's talking about. And then he tells us the key to the unity. And that's in the next section in Philippians. Oh, he, I'm sorry. He echoed that 
same idea that came from Jesus. Because Jesus was praying, and he said, I ask that they may all be one, so that, and here's the reason, the world may believe that you sent me. In other words, by our unity, our in the, as, as people in the church, by our unity, we are showing God to the world by our unity. So unity is really, really important because we're called to show God to the world. And so therefore, um, Paul was echoing that as he talked about unity in this book of Philippians. So he goes on and he gives a specific of how we can be unified. He says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, to to, to look at that and then go back to what he had said before, humility is really based on what we have been given. It's based on what, the, what God did for us. And he listed them. Encouragement in Christ, consolation of love from the Father, fellowship of the Spirit. Our unity is really based on the fact that we have all of these things in common. We can have the same mind because we have the same love, the same spirit, and the same purpose. In spite of diversity, we have the essentials in common. First thing we have in common, very quickly, is a relationship with God based on grace. We can stand before him unashamed because he has chosen to pay for our sin and uh, make the way for us to have a relationship with him. None of us have a claim to any responsibility for this. For, for grace are you saved through faith and not of yourselves. So we're all, we're all been given grace and live by grace. Also, our status as sons and daughters of God. We're fellow heirs with Christ. Again, a work of grace. Participation in God's work of building his kingdom. We've all been given spiritual gifts to benefit the body of Christ. And every one of us is uniquely created, um, and everyone is uniquely important. <laughs> uh, a work in progress. He's actively transforming us. That has implications because, you know, you say, please be patient. God's not finished with me yet. <laughs> um, that's the truth, isn't it? I mean, we're all a work in progress, and God is transforming us, and we're seeing progress, but we also see we all have a long way to go. But we're all in the same boat on that. We're all a work in progress. And then last, we all have a hope for eternity with him when uh, we are going to be made complete. Unity doesn't mean that we have to be carbon copies because we all have differences. We have preferences in how we like to see things done. We have personality differences. Bill did a seminar on that last week. And even doctrinal differences. Yes, it's true. Even on the teaching team, I can tell you for sure, there are major differences in some of the ways that we view different doctrines. But we can still be unified because we have so much in common. Um, it means that we're all, all of us, with all of our differences, but we're all playing on the same team. And uh, we start with the same privileges and advantages that we talked about here um, because of what he's done for us and how we interact within our differences in unity determines how effectively God can use us for his glory. So it's really important how we work with humility. Let me tell you a little bit about the word humility. I found this kind of interesting. I hope I don't bore you too much. But I do want to show you that um, the, it was kind of a, a morphing word, a changing word as time went on, as a lot, of, um, a lot of words do in languages. But in the early Greek, the word is tapenos, and it's uh, early Greek literature, it meant lowly, insignificant, weak, or poor. The opposite was a word that meant power or influence. 
Um, and they used it for a weapon that was couched as opposed to a weapon that was drawn and ready. So that was humility. Okay, and the Septuagint, that's a version of the Bible that was translated uh, into Greek, from the Hebrew into Greek, uh, in between the Old and the New Testament. Um, that word is used for an action rather than a state, and it means to stoop, to be modest, or compliant. Compliant, that's interesting. Stress on the proper attitude of the heart towards God and a right relationship with him. And then in the New Testament, the word um, is never, ever used for self-abasement. It's never used to make someone feel or make themselves feel belittled or degraded. It's not that at all. Sorry, Dad. I'm going like this because he's in heaven. He gets it now. But anyway, it's... (laughs) And hopefully so will I. But um, he was a good man. He was a good man. But it was about reeling yourself in, uh, away from your own power and influence. Um, it's the, the connotation of how it's used in the New Testament is kind of the idea of adjusting to rather than to humble or abase oneself. You kind of get the idea of how it was used. Well, Paul gives us some specific ideas of what, what humility is when we look at the surrounding text from what he talks about it. Um, with the humility of mind. Um, this is what he says. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but all for, for the interest of others. Well, first thing he does, if you look, is that he talks about um, opposites. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. So it's an opposite here um, of, of what humility is. Selfishness, empty conceit. Well, that first word, selfishness, um, the first place you can find it in the early Greek is in Aristotle, and it meant a self-seeking pursuit of political office by unfair means. So it's somebody who's trying to use every situation to promote themselves. You get the idea? This is the opposite of humility. Okay, it's a desire to put oneself forward. Paul uses it again in Philippians, actually earlier than chapter 2. It's in chapter 127, and, and it says, he, this is what he said, the former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, that's that same word, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. So they were preaching the gospel, but they were preaching it with their agenda in mind. They had something they were trying to accomplish with the gospel, and it wasn't saving souls. And so that's what they were all about. James uses it too. He says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility, there's the word, that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder in every evil practice. So the opposite of humility is that selfish ambition, that self-promoting agenda. A lot like the politics that we see these days. And I'm not taking sides here. Liberal, conservative. Everybody's got their agenda. And it's just, it's it's all over. Every way they vote, uh, everything they say. Um, And it's, it's sadly often does not have to do with what's best for the country. Empty conceit is the second one. Um, and, and that's another word, and it means uh, vain glory, groundless self-esteem, and empty pride. 
And the word occurs vastly throughout the um, Greco-Roman Empire, um, writings that we have, and it describes those who think too highly of themselves. Um, so it's pride, basically. Um, it's a preoccupation with self. Pride puts me on the throne and, of course, has to dethrone God in the process. Pride. It's self-seeking. Self-seeking agenda, pride. That's what humility is not. Well, then Paul goes and he tells us what humility is. He says, um, regard one another as more important than yourselves and do not look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So you get that same pride, self-seeking agenda flipped around and stated positively. Um, instead of having pride for yourself, you regard one another as more important than yourself. And then instead of having your own agenda, it says look out for the interests of others, which is God's agenda for them. So there really seems to be, as Paul is, is talking here, two parts to humility. First is putting aside my own selfish agenda that will serve me. And second is serving others as they need it, swallowing pride and considering them more important. Well, then Paul, just to make sure he really is zoning in his point on what humility is, he gives us an example of perfect humility. And, of course, who is that in? But Jesus Christ. And so he says this about Jesus Christ. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped, held on to, tight, right? But emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So here's Jesus' wonderful example. First he says, do nothing. Uh, Paul had said, do nothing from selfishness. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. And Paul tells us Jesus did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. So Jesus gives us a perfect example of what it is to regard others as more important than yourselves. And so we can say this. We follow Christ's example in humility when we let go of what we think we deserve in deference to what others need. I'm going to read that one more time. We follow Christ's example in humility when we let go of what we think we deserve in deference to what others need. He emptied himself. Jesus deserved the glory and the privilege. He deserved it all. But he chose to put it aside because he cared more for the needs of others than he did for his own glory. It really was the antithesis of selfish ambition because he poured himself out and became a servant. Um, I have a wonderful example I want to read to you um, that Richard Foster talks about in his um, book on prayer. And it's a, a, a woman named Therese, um, Therese of Lizot, and she... Um, had a prayer-filled approach to life that embodied putting self aside. She called it the little way. And this is what the little way was. It is to seek out the menial job, to un welcome unjust criticisms, to befriend among us those who annoy us, to help those who are ungrateful. It's the ministry of small things. And she believed that Jesus placed much more value on those small things than he ever would on those colossal spiritual things that we all seem to think we should be doing. Um, but this, you have to listen to this paragraph. It's so cute. An incident from Teresa's um, autobiography, The Story of a Soul, underscores the hiddenness of the little way. One uneducated and rather conceited sister had managed to irritate Therese in everything she did. 
Rather than avoid this person, however, she took the little way straight into the conflict. This is what she said. I set myself to treat her as if I loved her best of all. Therese succeeded so well in her little way that following her death, this same sister declared, during her life, I made her very happy. Therese, I'm sure, would be pleased. <laughs> I love that. But that is just a, a wonderful example of someone who has decided that their own agenda is less important than meeting the needs of others. And that's exactly it. Um, when we're humble, we're accepting reality. We understand our weaknesses and our strengths, but we don't make too much of them or too little of them. True, humiliate, true, true humility is therefore not self-focused at all. C.S. Lewis put it this way, and this is probably familiar to you. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. That's humility. Um, it's not so much thinking that people in our community here are better than we are. It's not what it's about. Um, but it's thinking of them as those that have needs and concerns that surpass our own. We're not supposed to struggle to find the good in people. That, we don't need to worry about that. But we need to see them from that common grace perspective, that we're all been saved by grace, not through ourselves, and we're all a work in progress, which is also a work of grace. We're all in the same boat, and therefore we can be humble with each other. Um, the second thing that Paul had asked was, do nothing from empty conceit. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Taking the, and then Jesus did it by taking the form of the bondservant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So a second way, the first way was pride. The second way now is our agenda. Um, we follow Christ's example in humility when we accept that God's purposes are bigger and more important than ours. Remember what Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, yet... Not as I will, but as you will. You know, Jesus was human. He was a human being. And every cell in his body was screaming out to get away from what he was about to encounter. He knew. He knew not only would he suffer immeasurable physical pain, but he would also suffer being ripped apart from God. And those two things had him just wishing he didn't have to do it. <laughs> But he ignored that human instinct for survival and pain, avoidance, and he turned his back on all of that in obedience to the Father's purposes and agenda. He definitely gave us an example in making our, uh, our agenda God's. And in doing that, Jesus really revealed the character of God, as we will when we're humble, because it's the epitome of God-likeness. He wasn't a grasping, selfish being, but one whose love for others found its consummate expression in pouring himself out. I found another consummate expression of pouring themselves out just uh, yesterday, actually, as I was uh, reading through a couple of blogs that I like to read. And it was a, it's a woman named Katie Davis. Now, um, oh, oh, yeah, oh, sorry. I'm trying to get a book, but it's up there. <laughs> um, Katie is, uh, I don't know if any of you have read this book. It's actually hit the New York Times bestseller list. It's uh, a recent publication. But she was a teenager from Tennessee um, and who left her comfortable life to live in poverty in the third world country of Uganda. And that's what her book is about. And this is what Katie writes in the introduction of her book. 
For as long as I remember, I had everything in this world that this world says is important. I was class president, she was in high school, homecoming queen, top of my class. I dated cute boys and bought cute shoes and drove a cute sports car. I had wonderful, supportive parents who so desired my success that they would have paid for me to go to college anywhere my heart desired. The fact that I loved Jesus was beginning to interfere with the plans I once had for my life and most certainly the plans others had for me. My heart had been apprehended by a great love, a love that compelled me to live differently. She goes off for a missions trip, a three-week missions trip in, in, uh, after Christmas in her senior year comes back absolutely in love with the people, the country of Uganda, and totally determined to go back as soon as she finishes high school. And she told her parents, I'm, I'm going to go for a whole year. I want to work in this missionary, this uh, orphanage. She was going to be teaching kindergarten, um, just, you know, 18 years old, taking that, that time out. So she went and, uh, and just felt totally drawn and fulfilled as she worked with these people. Um, she... Uh, heard about a little girl whose house had collapsed. I think it was an earthquake. And she, the little girl, um, when they dug her out, they realized that there were two other little girls living near three children, nine, seven, and four, without parents surviving on their own living in this house. So Katie had great compassion because she's all heart, this girl. And so she, she told them that they could come and sleep at her house at night, and then they would wait to see what the Lord would do next. Well, what the Lord did next was the children started calling her mommy. And... Um, at a very young age, because she was, you know, 19, 20 years old, she adopted these three children, and she is their mommy. And, uh, and as her life went on, she ended up adopting, get ready for this one, 10 more. She has 13 daughters. She's 24 years old. It gets better. She starts seeing all these things that are going on, these, the help that everyone needs. The, the poverty is just abject, and it's just killing her as she watches and remembers her own childhood and how privileged it was. And so she started to, uh, an agency that would sponsor children because you have to pay to put your children in public school in Uganda, and it was more than the um, parents could provide. And so she started the sponsoring thing where for, I think it's $300. You can pay for not only the child to go to school, but for all their supplies, their uniform, everything, and feed the family for a year. Not a bad deal for 300 bucks. She started with an idea of doing 40 children. 150 signed up. And in the ensuing years, she is now at over 600 children being sponsored through the United States in this agency. She started a feeding program to feed the poor. She now feeds 1,200 children from Monday to Friday every week. And she's self-sustaining. she started a self-sustaining vocational program where she got the Ugandan mothers they make these bead necklaces out of Ugandan magazines, and, and they sell them here in the United States, and they take that money to pay for the children's education and uh, provide for their families. But let me, remember, let me remind you, Katie is 24 years old. I wasn't doing all that much when I was 24. Ann Voskamp, who's another um, author, wrote this. She said, I look at Katie Davis, and she is this. She's one mother who lives the welcome of the gospel. You can look into the eyes of her children and see resurrection. You can see how her door is an open welcome to the wounded, her couch an open welcome for the drunk, her garage an open welcome to the homeless, her bed an open welcome to the sick, her table an open welcome to anyone, her smile an open welcome to every one of her children, every stranger, every guest. There is a person who has given up her own agenda and went with God's. And God is using her to impact thousands of people. 
You know, Katie's a gifted woman, but we've all been given spiritual gifts um, that make us unique and special. But the intended purpose of the gifts is never to put ourselves up. Never, ever. And so we should never be comparing ourselves with each other because we're all created for God's specific purpose. Um, they're not to build us up. In 1 Corinthians 12, 7, it says, But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. The gifts are given so that we can build each other up in the body of Christ. And we need to determine to use them that way. And that goes from the top on down in terms of church leadership. 1 Peter 5 says, tells the elders, Shepherd the flock among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, gain, but for, with eagerness. And then he tells the people under the elders, you younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward each other, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So we're all asked to live lives of humility. And what does that involve? It means not having our own agenda, but going with God's, and that pride would not be an issue in how we deal with others. I found a great quote I just want to read to you because I just couldn't say it better. <laughs> it's by Frank Gableine. He's a biblical scholar and has written several commentaries and thousands of articles, most of which I had to read in seminary. But here you go. If, in a, fel- if a fellowship is to arise which is oriented to the model of Christ, which is of one accord and governed by mercy and brotherly love and which fulfills its calling, then... There is a need of a disposition which is ready for service to others and which does not lift itself up above others. That's what's needed if we are to have humility. That's what's needed if we are to have unity. It's the first step. And when we all decide to have those two things, ready for service and um, clothing ourselves with humility, those things will make us lights the world, to the community around us. When people see our unity and how we treat each other, it reveals God. It reveals God. It's important. We need to do it. So, what are the benefits of humility? Well, first of all, God's going to get the glory, just like I said. It shows him in us. Um, later on in Philippians, he said, Paul said, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourself to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world holding forth the word of truth. So just by um, making sure that we are humble, we will show God. When we combine them, reeling yourself in and adjusting attitude to fit reality and putting needs, others' needs over yours, he's going to reveal himself through us. I had that happen to me in a small way a couple weeks ago. I was at this big conference. Um, there were two conferences I was attending in St. Louis. And the first one was for the association, the Advanced, let me get this right, ASA, Advanced Writers and Speakers Association. <laughs> um, and it's pretty rarefied air. Yes, they did let me in. But um, it's the people there, you ha- there's all these things you have to do. You have to have published this many books, and you have to cross state lines this many times a year, and blah, 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 and they have all these big platform business. So when I walked in, I didn't really know what to expect Um, because I've been to a lot of writers' conferences and there's a lot of very strange people that are writers. I guess I have to include myself in that category now. Um, So I didn't know what it was going to be like. But I went in and as I um, 
met with people and sat down at tables and, you know, introduced ourselves and everything, something really struck me. Nobody started the conversation by, by saying, um, hello, my name is so-and-so, and I've written 30 books. And some of them have written 60 books. One woman I met, met has written 120 books. And these are not self-published books. These are published by real publishers, and, and she'd written all these books. So as I'm getting to know these women, I'm getting smaller and smaller because I have one, <laughs> one book and not a very good agent. And so <laughs> I had no claim to fame. I just kind of sat silently and thought, do not look upon me. But you know what? Those women were awesome because they didn't talk about their books or how accomplished they were. Well, we would start the conversation, well, what's your thing? What do you speak on? And so we go around the group, and everybody had all these different varied topics that were kind of their pet thing that, that God had guided them into. And it was just so interesting. And then we talked about marketing, and we talked about all these different things that are of interest to writers, but nobody was blowing their own horn, not one person, until I finally said, how many books have you written? Oh, uh, over 60. Oh. So, I mean, it was just really awesome. But what, what I loved about it was just the fact that they were putting their own self-interest aside and they were trying to help me. And it was just so amazing to be in those presence of those ladies. I just can't tell you. It, it just helped me so much. And it was a great example to me as well. Humility is how God chooses to operate. He uses the humble to show himself. In 1 Corinthians it says, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. Of course he's going to use the humble, because the humble allows him to get the glory. And of course he's going to use it. And last, and I'll close with this, it's a great thing to be humble, because our reward will be great in heaven. Christ got a great reward. God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, and those of you who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So again, Christ was rewarded, and Jesus told us the first will be last and the last first. If you want to be considered great in God's kingdom, you have to be the servant of all, like the old song says. God rewards humility, and if it's not in this life, it will be without question rewarded in eternity. First Peter put it like this. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. Thank you for listening to New Hope Chapel's New Hope podcast. Chapel. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a small expression of the much larger body of Christ that spans across the world. We're a group of believers helping each other on our lifelong journeys to become like Jesus. While we have a variety of distinctives that make us a unique church, our main desire is to be God's church, to love Him, follow Him, to learn from Him, to let Him lead us and change our lives. We are His disciples, and He is our rabbi. He is our rabbi. Join us in the story that God is writing called New Hope Chapel. To learn more about our church, visit us at newhopechapel.org or check us out on Facebook slash newhopechapelmd. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and iTunes. Music kindly provided by the least of these. Thanks again for listening and God bless.